Today we discuss two of the great tourist destinations, Las Vegas and far north Queensland. Blake Christian says, however, there may be a little less money for Americans to spend because of Joe Biden's tax hikes. The head of Enterprise North, Kevin Byrne, believes up to a quarter of far north tourism businesses will be shut down within 12 months, despite the federal government's rescue package and hopeful looming return of international flights. Kevin Byrne is executive director of Enterprise North, a North Queensland organisation that fosters economic growth in that region of Australia. Kevin Byrne, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I do appreciate it. Now, tell us about Enterprise North, its aims and the region and the centres that you represent. Look, Enterprise North has been alive for about uh, three and a half years now. Uh, we formed, by, we were formed by a bunch of people who had similar aspirations and views about what we should do in advocating for policy and infrastructure for Northern Australia and particularly Northern Queensland, far North Queensland in our particular case, uh, to grow Australia. Now there was, there is uh, still going a fair degree of frustration about not matching the rhetoric with deed when it comes to populating Northern Australia and taking advantage of Northern Australia. We've had pretty well bipartisan support over the years uh, about what should happen in Northern Australia and the need to grow Northern Australia. Really, at the end of the day, precious little has happened. I first started going go to uh, conferences about developing Northern Australia when I left the Army in 1987 and uh, was running the Office of Northern and Regional Development in Cairns. Uh, and if you have a look at the agenda today, uh, with these Northern Australia Development Conferences, that agenda really has changed little in the past 30 years. Uh, our population growth is uh, declining as people become more urbanised. Uh, so there's a real challenge ahead, and that's why we formed, and uh, we are an organisation that is wedded to honest and robust advocacy for policy changes uh, and, a, and the right policy mix to grow our populations in Northern Australia. And indeed, part of that is the infrastructure required to support the communities uh, that will grow as population comes to the north. So that's probably it in a nutshell. We're wholly owned by our members. Uh, we're an incorporate, incorporated organisation and we attempt to play a positive role in bringing people to migrate to our part of the world, live here and sustain growth uh, into the future. And I have no doubt that'll happen, uh, but we want it to be accelerated. One of the nice things about uh, North Queensland, Cairns, Port Douglas and all that area, maybe it's because you're so far away, but North Queensland, I mean, Cairns, Port Douglas has this wonderful community spirit, doesn't it? Yes, we do. Uh, many of our communities sustained on that, uh, particularly when we go through hardship periods. And we're doing that now, I've got to tell you. Uh, so, yes, that's a wonderful foundation for us. And uh, we need to be very careful and jealously guard that. What happens in our Australia, I guess, but certainly our part of the world, 
uh, as we become more remote and, and uh, governments are more urban centric because they've got the population numbers and therefore the power in the democracy, the way uh, the way we exist. Uh, many of our towns, uh, certainly I've seen a, a shift in Cairns, we become corporatized other than the way we commence, and that is in, in Kansas case in particular as opposed to Townsville, uh, we were born from an entrepreneurial spirit and Cairns and Port Douglas still largely has that entrepreneurial spirit and we need to guard it jealously uh, because more and more we're being sucked into this vortex of Queensland first and you, ne you need to be part of the Queensland narrative and Team Queensland. Really that's code for from a political point of view across all political parties is a Brisbane-centric message that uh, we will operate the state of Queensland out of what happens in the southeast corner and, 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 the, and the policies that drive SEQ. And we've seen that certainly in this pandemic year play out to a great degree of detriment uh, to regions across northern Australia. What's the impact of government COVID policies and border closures on local business, the economic and communities in general? Look, it's been frankly disastrous. Uh, you know, from the initial lockdown in March um, all the way through. Uh, and I can understand the, the uh, general feeling of fear in communities, but we've been hoodwinked to a great degree. And, and we have told everybody that we have uh, the best medical uh, facilities in the world, we've got the best medical systems in the world and so on, and yet we haven't trusted them one inch. Uh, and uh, we've had politicians across Australia saying to everybody that their first responsibility is to keep everybody safe. Well, it's not really. Their first responsibility is wider than that. Uh, safety of citizens is paramount. We accept that. But also there is a responsibility to keep this community sustained and the community economic activities safe from interruption also. So it's a dual responsibility that I say that across Australia, premiers and, and minister, chief ministers and so on have not adhered to. They have really taken hold of this fear syndrome in Australia and responded accordingly. At the start of this pandemic, there was a great deal of uh, optimism uh, about the role of National Cabinet. And the National Cabinet's health advice and the way they were directing policy was a containment strategy across Australia. And identifying those areas where COVID uh, was appearing and dealing with it. We had a very strong and robust medical system and we still have. But instead of that being the ethos from a national perspective, it became each state, with the exception of notable exception of New South Wales, it became an elimination strategy. And when you have an elimination strategy, the initial response is to max maximise your political gain out of that. And in the case of uh, Queensland, for example, uh, we were lumped into that strategy. So, for example, Cairns, a community in far north Queensland, a community 2,200 kilometres of Brisbane, what from Brisbane, uh, further from Brisbane than incidentally Melbourne is from Brisbane, we were lumped into a false, false strategy uh, that has played to 
played out in an enormously economic disruptive way uh, with this community. We've advocated open borders and we continue to advocate open borders domestically in Australia. And the Australian government is operating a quarantine border uh, situation internationally and we understand the reasons for that. But a cross-border uh, uh, trade, uh, cross-border visitation needs to go ahead to the fullest extent possible. And that does not include uh, ambit uh, opening and closing of borders. Do you think um, governments really appreciate what's on the line here? And part two of this, do you think the locals really understand? Because at the moment, which is going to come to an end, uh, a lot of businesses and tourism are being helped out by you know, by government with a job keeper. Um, and that's going to go in a couple of weeks' time. So on one hand, we have the government, even though they have given out uh, almost a, a billion dollars to help tourism around Australia. But do you think they really understand what's on the line? And do you think the locals really understand what could very well happen if uh, the support isn't there and that the borders aren't kept open? That's a good question. Um, the short answer is no, I don't believe they have. Uh, and uh, the realisation of many of the decisions uh, coming home now uh, with stark reality. The, you can't, uh, it's disingenuous, for example, in Queensland, for our Premier uh, to run the line that, uh, you know, you need to keep JobKeeper going indefinitely uh, to keep communities active and safe. When much of the reason she's making this demand was caused by the state government actions in the first instance. And uh, we've seen that in other parts of Australia. So in terms of honesty, there's a big question mark there. In terms of political uh, nuancing and political advantage, of course you'd say that. Because much of what we're going through now, and communities are fearing this, is that there's going to be a contest between states and the federal government and the national good, I might say, in how we managed to get to phase two of this. Phase one was basically locking everybody down and frightening the living daylights out of them. And, and uh, you run policy around that. But at the end of the day, this thing will come to an end and it will come to an end pretty smartly with the rollout of vaccines. And then you're faced with how do we pick these economies up? How do we come back to employing people? How do we come back to growth in our population? How do we grow the confidence of our citizens that this thing is under control? How do we harmonise the relationships between state members of parliament, federal members of parliament and local government leaders? And what is the best outcome for our, for our communities? You know, we need to have parents and communities know that these schools are going to remain open and kids will be able to go to school and learn and, 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 uh, and associate it with each other. Everybody's thinking that, you know, we're going to snap back to normality overnight. We're not. We need to get back to normality, which will be different uh, in the quickest possible time. 
And that means that the state governments need to look rigidly at the economic fallout of much of what's transpired in the past year. I think one of the uh, terrible words right now that's been bandied around by governments, uh, especially in the Western uh, pseudo-democracies, that's emergency. Uh, In Victoria, uh, Dan Andrews is, besides falling downstairs after a few drinks, (laughs) <laughs> that's only hearsay, by the way, uh, has uh, this, these emergency powers for another nine months. Uh, they, they all want this emergency power, uh, which and part two of that is that the vaccine, they're saying, oh, you can still get uh, uh, get COVID, get the uh, coronavirus and therefore lockdowns you know, are still going to be on the go. Um, it's the whole thing seems to be uh, more of a of a. Um, as you mentioned, a, a political uh, standpoint, you know, they can you know, get, get some votes and look good because they've, they've saved your life, but also has, has a lot of control to it. And, you know, sure, it might be OK. Uh, they may get away with it in a city that has, you know, three or four or five million people there for a couple of days because they're all enclosed. But when you're up north, you're a long way away, uh, two hours by flight from uh, Brizzy or two hours and 10 minutes. And uh, three or two and a half days to drive, if you're going to be sensible, you're a long way away. So those, those decisions here uh, don't really, you know, gel a whole lot with what's happening uh, out of those metropolitan areas, does it? You're absolutely correct. And uh, this has been our, our discussion all along. You know, I'm sitting here representing Enterprise North and I've just spoken to you about it and what we do, the important work that we do. On a day-to-day basis, we're confronted with uh, this uh, absurd situation, I would classify it as, and it's my personal private position, it's not my member's position because I haven't tested it, but where state governments have ceded powers to unelected bureaucrats. Now, in the case of Queensland, for example, the Premier says, listen, it's not my decision or my uh, Uh, position here, but I'm responding to the health advice, and the health advice is this. I mean, it's it's all very easy to deflect that. And similarly, in Victoria, the same situation prevailed. We live in a democracy. The health bureaucrats, uh, police bureaucrats, or whatever, uh, it's incumbent upon them, in my view, to give advice to government. And government, elected people, make the decisions. Because the fact is that government representatives need to have a whole approach to what responsibilities are and part of the health response is for you know for example a classic is for as much full employment as possible uh, as much government support as possible for those who fall by the wayside I mean that's part of a health response in my view and uh, you know we, we uh, we classify ourselves as having responded magnificently to this COVID pandemic. And if you have a look at the raw numbers, with the exception of one particular state, that is true. But the other issues are going to come back and need attention. And nobody's looking at those. Uh, and I talk about the social issues of uh, long-term unemployment. I refer to the social issues of... Uh, the haves and the have-nots. Now, these people are part of the communities that you and I spoke about before, Port Douglas and Cairns and regional communities across this state and this great nation more broadly. And I think that there should be more emphasis placed on how those communities are going to manage their way out of this also. 
Um, I, my private position is JobKeeper had to stop. Uh, we couldn't go on uh, as a country uh, incurring the massive rollout of debts. And this argument that JobKeeper needs to go on for as long as international borders are effectively closed to international visitors can't be sustained morally. Um, uh, and, you know, whilst we might feel awfully sorry for those people who will be victims of this, our responsibilities will be to pick those people up and, and uh, carry on in a different way. This is a great opportunity for places like Cairns and Port Douglas and, and uh, further west in our western geographic areas, uh, Darwin in northern Australia, the Kimberleys and so on, of discovering new ways of how we can survive independently but linked to our state governments and the federal government. But we need a lot of localised decision-making here and some serious contemplation about how we're going to come out of this. And we hope as Enterprise North to play some sort of role in that. We've got all the tools here. You know, the federal government has provided RDAs, that's regional development uh, organisations across uh, northern Australia and in regional Australia. Up here, we've got a... Uh, Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund. We've got governments uh, pushing money out the door to keep people employed. We need to coordinate all this effort to, at the same time, growing our communities rather rather than uh, sustaining a social service mentality. We need to cut the umbilical cord, for want of a better term, and power on. We've got an opportunity now to re engineer our tourism offerings in Cairns and Port Douglas uh, and I dare say across Northern Australia and we need to be actively pursuing that. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to say too much because I could talk about this for half a day uh, but I want to focus on what needs to be done and that's what we're doing and uh, I hope that there and I thank you for the opportunity but I hope there are people listening to what we are saying. You know, we could talk all day and I would like to, but we haven't got all that, that long. A very serious issue there. Look, uh, compliance by fear has consequences. Until we can travel, until we can get over the fear of travel, what do you think we can expect in growth and getting back to not COVID normal, but to normal normal, uh, maybe in the next 12, 18 months? What do we have to do? Well... We've got to conquer the fear. Uh, that's the reality. Now, let's just go back to AstraZeneca. We have in Australia a health system or health uh, people, uh, Murphy, Kelly, Dr. Mur Professor Murphy and Professor Kelly nationally and, and, uh, uh, and others. Uh, we've got some uh, smart brains uh, at the state level also. Um, their advice to the Australian public is pretty consistent. Uh, the advice from every known uh, person uh, whom I respect uh, about the efficacy of the AstraZeneca, vir uh, AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine uh, is fine. And I think that our communities are not served by uh, people who are disputing that because of what might occur in the European Union and, and uh, what might, might have occurred because of some uh, professor in Stockholm in Sweden 
uh, calling it out. I would rather rely on the efficacy of the Australian medical fraternity. I, I love our medical processes in Australia, and I think we're world leaders. Kevin, great to talk to you. If somebody wants to find out more, though, about uh, Enterprise North, how do they do that? Well, you can go on the website, uh, or, uh, yeah, th- that's the easiest way. Go on the website or send me an email. It's up there, executenterprisenorth.org.au. Uh, and all the contact details are there. Uh, I'm very proud of what we do. I'm, I'm very, very proud of this part of the world. We, uh, can I just finish on a couple of st- statistics? I mean, we get uh, last, 2019, we uh, were the recipient, thankfully, of 3.4 million visitors. You know, that generates a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of employment. Uh, and of that, uh, 3.4 million. That's visitation across every every sector, uh, but there are 800,000 uh, international visitors that either came through Cairns Airport direct or through uh, from southern ports as part of tour packages. And uh, you know our international visitation has come to a grinding halt. So that is something we need to work on. Uh, and we look forward, uh, and we've got a very, very wonderful, we've got a wonderful product here. The Great Barrier Reefs in tip-top shape. We've got people who want to take you out there. We've got great guides. We've got great professionalism. So we're looking forward to welcoming all those people back into the tourism economy. And we also look forward to future investment in the broader uh, economy of far north Queensland. So thank you for the opportunity of talking to you. Kevin, thank you very much. Kurt Clyde has witnessed Las Vegas change from a glittering metropolis to a shadow of itself during the wave of COVID restrictions. Due to the impact of the pandemic, the number of visitors to Las Vegas dropped sharply in 2020 over the previous year. In 2020, Las Vegas recorded roughly 19 million visitors, whereas it attracted over 42 million people in 2019. And the man who knows all about Las Vegas, except Las Vegas is not open. Kirk Clyde, great to see you once again. It is. It is. This, a year ago today as we record this, we record this on March 18th, at least Las Vegas time. Of course, Australia lives in the future. But this was day two of our 79-day lockdown. And I went shopping a year ago today, and here's the way it looked. Oh, my gosh. Just amazing. What a change. Mike is going to be showing you some scenes as we go through of when I took a stroll down the trip. Down the, it was a trip to stroll down the strip back in late March of last year. But thankfully, we are coming back, Mike. And one of the reasons is, of course, the COVID vaccine. I got my first shot for the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, on Saturday. And wow. I mean, it was a wonderful experience, actually. Thousands of people at the location that I was at, uh, Cashman Field, which is where our former uh, minor league baseball team used to be known as the 51s because of Area 51. Over 6,000 people that day got a shot at Cashman Field and the Nevada National Guard, very well organized, getting people through there as quickly as possible. But whoa, the side effects were intense. As you might know, if you've seen me before with Mike, I did have COVID back to start the year. Welcome to 2021. It was a, a pretty difficult experience, and uh, might, might even just a B-roll of what I looked like in the midst of uh, COVID. And then to get the shot, 
the next day it was like COVID light. I had the night sweats. It was, it was just, I had some work scheduled. Actually, I had to have my partner help me with it because I couldn't do it myself. I was that sick. But thankfully I talked to my uh, amazing daughter who's a doctor and she was telling me that if you've had COVID, a lot of people are saying they got the worst reactions on the second shot but if you've had COVID, what she was telling me is you often have the worst reactions off the first shot and the fact that you do have these side effects is actually a good thing because what it means is you're having a good immuno reaction to that vaccination and will have a strong resistance against it so i got it now four or five days ago. I'm feeling much better today. But uh, be prepared for that, especially if you've had COVID to have a pretty intense reaction. But it's what we need to get us back up and going. And here in Nevada, starting on April 5th, it's open for everybody. Beginning Mm. April 5th, everybody 16 and over is eligible to get a COVID vaccination. And uh, that is just a great thing for our city, a great thing for our community as we try to come back from what was really devastating. We were rocking along beginning of 2020. We had less than 4% unemployment in Las Vegas. One year ago today, it was one in three. It was 33% unemployment. As the city, as you see from some of the video shots, it's just the strip wall-to-wall people ground to a halt it's been an amazing year and spring is beginning it's a nice warm day got my vegas golden knights jersey on that's our uh, nhl hockey team it's kind of crazy you think of temperatures 45 degrees you don't necessarily think of ice hockey but we've got a pretty good team here in the mojave desert so uh, they are now allowing a few fans into the t-mobile arena for their games so i think the end we're not completely out of the tunnel of COVID hell but the uh, end is certainly in sight. You seem to be agreeing with what uh, one of our uh, guests, uh, Kevin Byrne from uh, North Queensland Enterprise North, was saying. Uh, the uh, vaccine, that uh, seven-letter word vaccine, that's probably the, the ticket. That's probably the magic cure. That's probably uh, it to get things going back to normal. How do you feel about that? Oh, absolutely. You got it. You got to get it. And I think there will be side effects. My 84-year-old mother got her first shot. She's going to get her second shot because there's three weeks with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, three weeks between shots. The Johnson and Johnson, I was kind of hoping to get that one because that's one and done. That's still in pretty short supply. From what I understand, there's probably only a handful, maybe less than a thousand people here in Nevada that have gotten the the Johnson and Johnson, the J and J vaccine so far. The vast majority of people, including myself, have gotten the Pfizer vaccine. And I was talking to a friend of mine. They got their first shot. No reaction at all. Me knocked out, knocked out (laughs) from it. And I'm just hoping I'm actually the next time I'm booked on April the 3rd, which is a Saturday to get my second shot three weeks from my first shot. I'm going to plan nothing for that weekend Mm. just uh, in case there's a reaction to it. But that short term pain for long term gain. No one. if, If you've had COVID, as I've had, that was a scary dangerous experience remember i still got it in the bedroom the pulse oximeter reading your blood oxygen levels practically continuously it was a horrible scary experience so if you've been through covid i don't think there's very many people that will hesitate to get that vaccination because it really 
brings us back to life. It brings Vegas to the way it was back in the first part of 2020 before our city, our state, our nation and the world just came to a complete screeching halt and probably very few significant cities in the world hit harder economically than right here in Las Vegas. So how do you think though Vegas will get back on its feet? Do you think it'll be a slow, th- because there's that fear factor, isn't there? People are still are yes. scared and they're still saying you can get COVID even with the vaccine. Yeah, you know, that's true. And honest with you, if I was somebody living, I don't know, pick pick any city, pick Denver, Denver, I would still probably wait a few months to come mm. back because the shows haven't revved up yet. There's starting to be a few. We're up to 50% capacity yet. The pools are opening up now. There's still a bunch of uh, hotels that haven't, at least 13, that have not reopened, including my, one of my faves. I could just about see it in the distance there, Eastside Cannery. It has been closed now for over a year with no signs of uh, opening anytime soon. The key to especially getting a tourist and convention area open like the Strip is getting those visitors back here. Some of the local casinos have actually done okay that target the local market. But the main, the the flashy ones, the ones that you see on TV, the ones you're familiar with on the Las Vegas Strip, they still have tremendous vacancies and occupancies. And, of course, there's all kinds of talk now about diversifying the economy. That happened back in 2008 as well when we had the economic crash there because we are still so based on the visitor tourism gaming uh, convention economy with about uh, one third of our economy based around that but the signs are good here we are in the middle of march and the first big convention is actually scheduled for june at this beautiful new convention center expansion of the convention center it's the largest in the world and mike i'll give you one guess it's a huge convention. I've not been in it, but I've been by it and seen some of the exhibits a few times. A massive convention. Any idea what the um, what the name of it is? No idea at all. You want to take a guess? Take a shot? You know, be, I, would, it, would it be a sexpo? <laughs> we have a few of those, too. The New Virgin. That's one thing nice. The New Virgin used to be the Hard Rock New Virgin Hotel Casino. That opens on March 25th. We've got this huge new resorts casino, which is run by the Genting Group. I believe they're based, actually, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in Malaysia. But the name of the convention, one of our big ones here, it has been approved to come back in June. It's the World of Concrete. Well, they're trying to cement their position. (laughs) That is exactly right. (laughs) And that will open the door. If that is okay, the world. I got to take a sip of Coke before I continue with this here. The concrete's just gotten me all choked up. (laughs) All the fibers. Okay, before we uh, wrap this. Let me say that again. Let me say that again. I just want to feel it. The world of concrete. Okay, I'm good now. Okay, now. the big question i've had many calls many emails they want to know I mean, kirk loves his gambling people love yes. the shows kirk yes. adores the buffets are they yes. coming back no i mean it really was it was a huge lifestyle change i mean this is small potatoes compared to someone who's you know living in a one-bedroom apartment with two kids i mean i can't even imagine mm. what they were going through just starting to go through a year ago and finally we're starting to get some of the schools open next month finally they'll be in person uh they'll be in person instruction but i actually for lunch 
just a couple of hours ago at a buffet, but it was not a casino buffet, a place called Golden Corral, which is actually a southern chain of buffets. It's like being back in South Carolina here in southern Nevada. So it's a a pretty tasty chain if you like southern food, like those yams with sweet potatoes. Yeah, we got them for you. But they are going to do extremely well. They have folks serve you. You cannot serve yourself. But they had a really nice lunchtime business, and they are going to profit because many, many of the buffets are not opening back up. The last casino buffet I had, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 2020. Delicious corned beef at Boulder Station was just there yesterday. And they are turning that into a food court, which I think Red Rock Resorts is making a big mistake with that. Talk to some people with Boyd Entertainment. They own uh, right over here. See right over there. Uh, Sam's Town, which is a huge casino here on what's called the Second Strip in in Las Vegas, the Boulder Highway. Talk about that opening in July of August. But is the buffet culture coming back to Las Vegas? That is one of the things that maybe changed for a long, long time if not forever, because of the dynamics of COVID. It'll be interesting to see how the business and cultural dynamic changes at Boulder Station, because I used to joke to some of the folks working there, there were so many kids, especially Hispanic families that would come in, and you see tables of 10, 15, 20 people all together in one group, how the dynamics of their clientele and their business changes as they go forward with putting in a food court instead of a buffet. But uh, they are a couple coming back. I think it's called the Wicked Spoon at the Cosmopolitan. These are the upscale buffets. I mean, that's a buffet that I think if you walk in for dinner, it's like 50, 60 bucks. But they are going to be reopening. But the ubiquitous buffet that's everywhere, not so much. South Point, they have got now all 11 of their restaurants open, and that includes their buffet. But the buffet where you serve yourself instead of having someone serve you, that I think for the foreseeable future, I would say really for the course of the next few years, will uh, be a thing of the past. Well, all very interesting, Kirk. Can't wait for the um, for everything to open up. Just as we wrap yes. this up, I just got to describe what Kirk looks like at a, um, at a buffet. It's a bit like Pac-Man from one end of the table and and keeps going to the end. I don't ever wear this jersey, which I am going to believe it or not, I am going to take this jersey and I'm going to put it on a eBay auction for the benefit of this three-square food bank here in Las Vegas because they have done, I mean, it almost makes me tear up to think what a remarkable job Three Square has done here in Las Vegas. They have given out... I mean, I I can't even fathom how many tons of food. So uh, I'm going to sell the shirt off my back for the folks at Three Square Food Bank coming soon. And we'll uh, make sure you know when that auction is up on eBay. But uh, it has been an amazing year. It has been an amazing year. Las Vegas has been through so much. Honestly, if you're planning a trip from overseas, well, we haven't opened up the borders yet. But I would say that might be a possibility by the time we get into the fall and a real bellwether will be interesting, of course, as World of Concrete does in June. <laughs> but if that does well, that will open the door to the other major shows and events that we've got going on. And, of course, the big one is CES, the Consumer Electronics Expo in uh, January. And if that comes back in full force next year, then I think we can say that the worst is all behind us. But we've still got a ways to go to mm. get out of the tunnel. But I, I'm looking over. I think I see some light. 
Kirk Clyde from Las Vegas, the, the buffet man himself, gambling man himself, I know from experience. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye, Mike. Joe Biden and the administration have been out and about selling the massive $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. But what about the inevitable tax hikes and how will it affect a recovering economy? From Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite, uh, Blake Christian, great to see you once again. Always great to see you, Mike. Look, there's been a, a lot of talk in the last few days about Joe Biden's tax plans. Has there been any indication of how and when these measures are expected to be introduced? Well, from what I understand, uh, you know, he's, he's going to be pushing this infrastructure bill uh, in coming weeks and he'll be tying this tax increase to that. So I think I think we'll see um, see this come, you know, to the to the press pretty quickly in the next few weeks, I think. So well, it'll take months to pass, but uh, I think it'll uh, it's right before us right now. The planned increases uh they say include raising the corporate tax from 21 to 28 percent, increasing the income tax rate on people making more than 400,000, expanding the estate tax, rolling back tax preferences on pass-through businesses such as uh, limited liability companies, and setting up a higher capital gains tax rate for individuals making at least a million dollars. What's your thoughts on this? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's scary. And, um, you know, the 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 fact of the matter is, you know, it's it's people are all for tax increases as long as it doesn't land on them. So he's being pretty surgical and going after the the top one percent, um, maybe the top three percent. And um, so he'll have, um, you know, probably some of the masses uh, supporting this. Can you tell us about some of these measures and which groups will be most affected overall? Right. Well, again, it's going uh, mo- the vast majority of of taxes that drive uh, the federal spending are, are individual taxes. Uh, you know, corp- corporations are are kind of the pariah out there in the press saying, oh, you know, they get these tax breaks and that, but. But they're a they're kind of a rounding error in in the total tax collections. Most most of the taxes are um, on the shoulders of of individual taxpayers. So um, so again, top you know three percent are going to get hit hit by this. Um, it's going to uh, assuredly hit the um, the energy sector, traditional you know oil and gas. Uh, they're going to take away a lot of the um, the tax benefits that are there, depletion, exploration, um, cost, expensing, things of that nature. Um, and uh, ultimately, it's going to cost everybody because we're going to see inflation out of this. Um, I saw projections that it would reduce, uh, you know, uh, U.S. output by 0.8%. Would reduce wages by 0.7 percent, and uh, and that's not dropping it after they've jacked it up to um, you know 15 dollar minimum wage. Uh, so anyway, pretty pretty impactful, and uh, and basically this is just kind of following through on Biden's campaign promise that he was going to you know roll back all of um, 
the 2017 tax act that uh, that uh, President Trump brought in, and uh, and you know, it's not too many people that won't tell you that the the huge huge economic gains we've had over the past uh, three to four years were attributable to those tax decreases. And um, but Joe Biden's hell bent to uh, you know unwind pretty much everything that Trump did, and this is another. You know, another goal of his. Incredible. Did you know that Joe Biden has actually signed more than 37 executive orders? That's amazing, isn't it? Oh, you know, I I actually heard a number that that was twice, almost twice that large. But uh, maybe he's maybe he hasn't signed them all yet. That's right. He's still trying to find the Oval Office. But any indication of the total revenue they wish to raise? Now, I've seen figures... Uh, around about $2 trillion over 10 years. Can you illuminate on that for me? Well, d- during his campaign, I, so, some some people projected that it was going to be $2, two trillion a year um, all, all in additional costs to uh, consumers and things. Uh, you know, that, you know, wh- whether how much of that go is going to the federal government is is a little bit of a mystery sometimes. But I've heard numbers between two, two and four million, four trillion. So wow. we keep, you know, again, we as we've talked about in in last prior episodes, uh, the the billions and trillions kind of uh, melt into each other. Yeah, yeah, they just almost irrelevant anymore. And over how many years? The four trillion is that still? You know, would you say ten years or over? Yeah, I mean, usually when they're scoring these types of bills, they they do it over a ten year period. Mm. So. Um, you know, the, we, we've accumulated $6 trillion of additional debt with all the, the CARES Act and, and the most recent uh, legislation that was passed last week. And, uh, and then this would, you know, this would be another uh, minimum of $2 trillion, but I, I think that number is very, very low. There's going to be so many other, hmm. other costs that haven't been factored in. If these measures say, if they're introduced, say, this year or next, what do you think the overall effect on the economy will be? Well, I think I think you're going to see a, a real slowing. You're going to see, you know, I, the most annoying part is you're just going to see a lot more government overreach and, and controlling of businesses. And uh, it's going it, to naturally slow the economy and it's just going to drive up costs. And when that happens... You know, businesses are going to, you know, find ways to cut costs or or increase revenue. So they're going to either, and probably a combination, raise prices, and they're also going to cut headcount. They're going to cut wages. They're going to cut benefits, and um, so it's it's going to have a, a real ripple effect through the economy. And what consumers don't realize is, you know, there's a huge cost. To going green, I, I am all for um, you know uh, intelligent energy reductions, alternative energies, but uh, you know a lot of them that they they pick as winners are not the most uh, cost efficient, and um, I'd like to see them um, you know put a lot more money into R and D and uh, come up with you know, additional solutions rather than just, you know, let's do more windmills and solar panels. Uh, you know, both of those have a place, but they're not, you know, exactly the, um, you know, the 
the solution to everything. Mm. Yeah, the uh, windmills, they certainly handle the cold well. Uh, I, you know, as in Texas, I mean, they, they really stood there and did nothing. And uh, the, the Texans really appreciated the uh, renewables at that stage. And now, if somebody wants to have a, a taxing talk with you, how would they do that? Uh, you can reach me through uh, our firm website, www.hcbt.com, or just Google Blake Christian CPA, and uh, you'll get my contact information. Blake Christian, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.